Welcome to the Cold Steel Surgical Podcast with your hosts Amir Farouk and Chad Ball. We've had the absolute privilege of chatting with some amazing Canadian as well as international guests over the past year. While the topics have been broad in range, whether clinical, social, or political, our aims for the podcast continue to remain the same. We hope to inspire discussion, creativity, scholarly research, and career development in all Canadian surgeons. We hope you enjoy our second season as we continue to highlight some incredible guests, deliver detailed masterclass sessions on a myriad of clinical topics, and introduce some fresh new features such as debate and companion formats. We hope you relish the podcast as much as we do. Our guest for this episode does not believe in comfort zones. Dr. Vivian McAllister is a transplant surgeon and a professor of surgery in London, Ontario, and a former editor-in-chief of the Canadian Journal of Surgery. At the age of 52, Dr. McAllister decided to enlist with the Canadian Forces as a combat surgeon. For all of his amazing contributions as a combat surgeon and as a researcher, he was recently named an officer of the Order of Canada. In this episode, we talk about why he chose to become a military surgeon, some of the challenges of current training paradigms, and his experience being an editor-in-chief of CJS. Please note that in this episode, we do discuss the very real but terrible things that Dr. McAllister had to witness while on tour with the Canadian military. Please see show notes for details. Dr. McAllister, thank you once again so much for joining us on the podcast. It's a privilege for us to have you on and and to get to learn about you and your training pathway and to pick your brain. For those of us, the few people who may be listening who don't know you, can you tell us where you grew up and what your training pathway was? It's my privilege too, and thank you for having me. Um, So my introduction to Canada was after graduating medical school in Trinity College, Dublin, uh, I uh, did two years of family medicine training. And my first job after that was to go up north in northern Saskatchewan, which I thought was for a year for a bit of adventure. And to be quite honest, I've had a wonderful career, but that year was uh, particularly special. And um, after that, I, I did a few years as family doctor in Saskatchewan and then went back to Ireland and completed surgery training But I always wanted to come back to Canada. And um, Bill Wall advertised for a fellow, and I joined him for training in liver surgery and transplantation in 1990. So that was my training pathway. Uh, After that, I got a job in Halifax as uh, a surgeon with the team down in Halifax uh, doing liver transplantation and general surgery. What was it like to train under Bill Wall in the in the heyday, Dr. McAllister? You know, I've been so lucky. I wonder if we're all the same, Chad. I don't know. But I feel I was at the transition period between surgery that had not changed in roughly 100 years. And then during my fellowship, uh, everything changed. Uh, so that when I got into practice, I actually remember a marking to 
one of uh, the surgeons saying, do you know that I wasn't trained for any of the operations that I'm currently doing? Uh, they had all been invented after my fellowship. So working with Bill was having this connection directly with the past of terrific surgery, a very technically demanding surgery, and uh, you know uh, a, a situation where you're expected to get the best results, uh, and there was no excuses. There were no excuses. So uh, it was terrific. It, it was one of the best training experiences in my career it's always remarkable to me uh, when i when i hear people say that and just uh, reminds you how important it is to always be learning and have the ability to change what you do no matter where you are in your career and be able to embrace new techniques uh, for things that you may ne never have done or seen uh, as a trainee so that's quite inspiring one of the things you're so well known nationally for is sort of your turn towards the military, I'd say relatively uh, as, a, as an experience or uh, relatively late uh, in your career. That's okay. Amir, you can say late <laughs> in my career. That's <laughs> So, yes. Yeah, so you, you became a member of the military late in your career. What prompted you to do that? And how does uh, transplantation sort of merge with trauma surgery? Well, that's, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of questions in that one. Um, the first thing was that my joining the military was a confluence of uh, certain events. So uh, as a surgeon in Halifax, I had been in direct contact with members of the Canadian Armed Forces who were training in medicine and in surgery. So I was very familiar with what was required. In fact, one of my trainees, uh, Jay Doucette, uh, asked me after completing general surgery, could he do a fellowship? And I was a transplant surgeon. And I was saying, Jay, what, what interest do you think the military would have in transplant surgery? And he said, well, my interest is really to stay and learn for another two years rather than go and uh, be working in a, in, in a hospital that didn't have a lot of acute care patients. And that was the way the military worked in those days. So we invented uh, a fellowship called catastrophic surgery. And I had to change it later because we, we called it catastrophe surgery later because we didn't want there to be the uh, impression that we had created the <laughs> catastrophe, the catastrophic surgery. And uh, Jay is now a trauma surgeon in San Diego and uh, doing very well with the, the uh, American College of Surgeons and contributing a lot. Uh, but I noticed that he still has it in his CV that he did catastrophe surgery with me. And what we uh, defined that as was um, looking after a patient who either has catastrophic injuries, one patient with catastrophic injuries, or multiple patients, so that the catastrophe is the fact you've got a lot of patients at the same time. And um, I think we were ahead of our times doing that in the early 90s. Um, so later, what happened was with the war in Afghanistan, I was very conscious of the fact that all the jobs that I got had been done by other Canadians over the years, and I, I was walking in their shoes. And uh, I felt that surgeons owed it to the country that if we got a remarkably good living that we do have, uh, that if soldiers are put in harm's way, there had to be a surgeon right behind them ready to care for injuries so that they had the best chance of survival uh, and full recovery. 
so it was at the right time in my life. My children had grown up uh, and I offered my services. Now, I was, as you say, known for being a, a transplant surgeon, but they were short, so they didn't have any choice and they accepted me on that basis. But I think it turned out to be quite a good combination to have the training as a liver surgeon and a transplant surgeon uh, who was faced with uh, patients with catastrophic injuries. I think Dr. Ball probably uh, would agree with you. He's, you know, I, my sense from Dr. Ball is that uh, his liver training really um, uh, helped with his trauma surgery as well. Are you able to share any highlights of what that experience was like being uh, a surgeon with the military? Uh, and what really stands out for you as part of that experience? So my, my first uh, deployment was as a civilian augmentee of the um, team in, uh, at Kandahar Airfield. And uh, I joined a, a, you know, a very unified, organized team of military uh, physicians, nurses, and technicians. And they knew what they were about. And it was clear to me within 30 seconds of getting there that they knew what they were about. And uh, I would best contribute if I conformed to what they were doing. So I learned a lot from them in the first deployment. I also learned that um, I enjoyed doing what I could do and I, I was able to help. So I offered to join and put on uniform so that I could be an integral part of the team. Uh, and I'm very pleased that I did that. Um, so I had many deployments afterwards in uniform. Um, there are lots of highlights. You know, I, I think you'll have to tease them out of me one at a time, uh, really. But what I was pleased about when I got there first, and they were a little suspicious, you know, what's an academic surgeon? He's going to be pointing, you know, looking down his nose at us. Um, he's... Um, he does austere, he does, you know, unusual type surgery, transplantation. What's he going to contribute to the team? And very soon after I was there as in my first deployment as a civilian, we had a young patient who was maybe nine years old. He'd been shot in the back and he had had three operations prior to that. They had dragged him up to survival with fantastic critical care and suddenly he started to bleed again and we realized he was bleeding from his liver and uh, they turned there to me and said well what are you going to do now so we were about a month into his care and I operated and as you know he, he stuck down and a little child very delicate uh, and I managed to go in and I tied off the right hepatic artery with a very simple operation and everything got better so my reputation was made and I was delighted because uh, the patient was saved. And uh, that was a, a very you know, important highlight, I think, in my overall career because it set me on the path. I, I knew that I, I could do what they needed. That's, a, that's an amazing story. And, you know, I feel strongly about what you and, and so many of our colleagues have, have, have done. And I hope you know, in my career time, I'll have the opportunity to, to engage in that 
type of environment and scenario as well. Uh, it, really, really impressive. I'm curious what your view on um, war crimes, for, you know, in general maybe, but in particular medically related war crimes would, would be. What, how do you think of, uh, of some of that? Yeah, well, uh, that's a really, a really important question to me, and I've—it's not one I've contributed anything like I should to it. I didn't. I never expected uh, to be faced with worries about that. Uh, my worry was that I would perform as required to help patients, but when I saw patients with these extraordinary injuries. I mean, unbelievable injuries. And then realize that these were wrought upon that patient by another individual, another human who tried to do this to them. I realized after a while the pattern, you know, surgeons are wonderful at seeing patterns. We see patterns very quickly. Uh, we wouldn't be good surgeons otherwise. And I saw the pattern that this was not an attempt in Afghanistan or in Iraq to try and immobilize uh, an enemy. This wasn't taking a soldier out. This was actually trying to cause the maximum injury to a human, knowing the systems we have to look after patients, that they would survive. And we saw injuries over, in, over there that if you got the same injuries on the 401 in Ontario, you would not survive. We could not get you from the 401 back to the hospital in time and 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 help you survive. Not, not at the rate that we achieved in Afghanistan. So we were kind of playing into the hands of these very evil people who escalated the injuries over the five deployments that I had there. And I saw them get worse and worse and worse and worse. And they, I, we discovered later that they had medical intelligence to know what we could look after. And they just escalated to take us to the next level. So in the end, you know, the, 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 uh, we described uh, the effect of the anti-personnel IED um, in the British Journal of Medicine. And... It's almost horrific to to remember, you know. It, it basically uh, one leg blown off below the knee, one leg blown off above the knee, the perineum ripped apart, uh, the pelvis shattered by the force going up, and it breaks all of the ligaments in the pelvis, and then injuries in the abdomen uh, from below, because our our hardware above protected the the box and the abdomen from injury. And then arms gone, eyes gone. Unbelievable that they did this to another human. So I started to think about it and said, you know, this is more than a challenge for a surgeon. This is actually a legal challenge. To do this has got to be wrong. So I looked up the um, law on the matter and it is absolutely abhorrent to the law to cause what's called superfluous injury to an enemy is a war crime. And I saw systematic war crimes over in Afghanistan perpetrated against us. 
and against the people of Afghanistan. And of course, we've left there and they're still doing it to each other. So um, I feel we looked after a patient by patient, but uh, I've let the side down. I know this stuff. I tried to include it in some of the papers that we wrote about it, but nobody's paying attention and it, it won't stop. The capability of humans to harm other humans has only got worse and uh, they're not stopping. They're going to keep going until the most, I mean, I don't know what the next level of injury can be because I thought I saw the worst, but uh, Chad, I, I, I think they're war crimes and I don't know what to do about it. Yeah, it's a it's a very dark place to to go to mentally, and of course, you know, in the real world, as as you have, and it's uh, yeah, it's 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 absolutely terrible. One one of the really interesting conversations that we had on Cold Steel was with Phil Daw, who, of course, you know well from Vancouver, and we talked about a, a paper uh, that was impressed with the Journal of Trauma that. Um, really supplies or reinforces some of the nuts and bolts of your comment about the differential in our ability to save severely injured patients in the military side of things versus the civilian side. And the, this particular manuscript um, really outlined the the special operators, special forces um, deaths and, and the M&M process that then happened starting in the desert all the way back to the U.S., and how they were able to uh, turn that around since September 11th in increments and really achieve remarkable outcomes. And as you point out, you know, in in disease patterns and injury patterns that we would never be able to salvage in the civilian world, it is absolutely remarkable. How how do we, as a as a say a trauma collective in Canada? Um, bring home some of those lessons and and try and build our trauma systems to be better? Well, you know, our trauma systems are already enormously better than uh, when they were, where they were at the beginning of the uh, wars in Afghanistan. And uh, the wars in Afghanistan really did teach us the uh, importance of evacuation from the point of injury, um, immediate actions by medics uh, there and getting them practical so that they were they were capable of doing good care and then getting them back to the uh, first um, point of resuscitation, damage control surgery, and then on to definitive surgery. And I think that's the model that we're using now in our systems. And we're getting better and better. You know, in Ontario, we have orange, uh, which is very similar to the, it's, it's almost modeled on the uh, medical evac, uh, helicopter evac system that the Americans supplied for us. Within the military, we have some troubles because we don't have the same evac system and we, we rely on our allies to be able to do it. Interestingly, Phil um, was in Iraq uh, and uh, with, uh, you know, and I took over from Phil uh, on deployment there. And one of the things we, we had a very quiet period and we did a lot of exercises and then we had a busy period. And uh, during the exercises, we tried to stress the system and see where are we uh, uh, weakest. And you know what we found, actually, one of the weakest places we are with uh, severe burns. So 
the Americans have a wonderful system of uh, care for severe burns in the military. So where they will send a burn team all the way. They'll send one anywhere in the world now to pick somebody up. And it's not just critical care evacuation, it's burn team critical care evacuation. And that will save a life of a severely burned patient. They're brought then, then back to Texas and uh, look after. And when we try to think about what would happen a Canadian soldier or citizen who was injured with severe burn in Iraq, the best system I could think of was call the Americans and get them to at least to Texas. And then we can think about where they go from Texas uh, in Canada. And even then in Canada, we don't have the same level of burn care that we had maybe 20, 30 years ago. So I think that's our greatest weakness. I think evacuation is actually improving and we've learned a lot from the military, but the next the next challenge will be how to deal with uh, these specialized but severely injured patients. I'd, I'd love to walk down the, the rabbit hole a little bit with you of, of sort of resident training in, in 2020. Our, our colleague, Paul Engels, who, you know, as the many listeners know, is a trauma surgeon in, in Hamilton at McMaster, um, is, is in the midst, uh, it, it's not published yet, but is looking at, um, you know, exposures in terms of numbers of operative cases, as well as just uh, level one or, or high uh, high acuity trauma exposures in in residency uh, within general surgery across the country, um, and, and I'm you know not not just myself, but really a lot of the trauma surgeons and acute care surgeons across the country are extremely concerned at the low volumes that our general surgery residents are currently being that they're currently seeing. Um, and certainly there's, there's, you know, better places and worse places across the country. But I think it's probably quite concerning whether you're going to take a job in, in Timmins, uh, Ontario, or whether you're in Lethbridge, Alberta, or anywhere in between, you're, you're going to have to deal with the trauma here and there. And I, I worry that we're not doing these graduates justice um, in terms of their, their trauma training and exposure. W what's your sense of that? Well, it's, it's a great point. It's a very serious point. Um, the residents who graduated when I graduated were expected to go into practice, uh, community practice. There might be one or two surgeons in the hospitals they were in, and uh, they would be expected to uh, deal with the full gamut of general surgery, including uh, road traffic accidents where there'd be massively injured patients. Uh, this has changed up to today, but there's still, you know, it's only a question of proportions. So there's a, maybe 20, 30% now who are going into community practice straight away. Uh, so our residency training programs still have to be able to give uh, graduating residents the skill sets that are required for that type of practice. And although the type of trauma they're going to see is rare, they're going to see it and they're going to have to be able to deal with it properly. I think luckily uh, the world has moved on since when I was a resident uh, with ATLS that was just coming in after I graduated. Uh, you, you're going to know how to resuscitate those patients. With damage control surgery, you're going to know how to get the patient from your center to the next uh, port of call. 
And that's something that actually we learned from the military. When we were in Kandahar airfield, we were only part of the chain of evacuation. You weren't the, the definitive surgeon. You had to just get that patient to the next uh, level of care and to get him there as or her there as well in as good a health as possible. Uh, and uh, I think Timmons, the example you picked, is very similar. They've got to get the patient either to Sudbury or down to Toronto or London. Um, and to know how to do that has to be within the skill set of a graduating resident. But it's not difficult. That's not difficult. You know, you've got to know how to operate quickly, how to pack things, how to stop bleeding, and how to uh, limit contamination. Really, there's, we're not asking you to be, uh, uh, you know, a definitive trauma surgeon. And we, we do have systems in place now, I think, throughout the entire country that if you are injured, it really doesn't matter where you're injured, you're going to get roughly the same type of care. Uh, you're going to get resuscitated. You're going to get damage control surgery. You're going to be moved to this, the major center and uh, you're going to get definitive care. And even within a city, it'll be the exact same. So if you're in a community hospital in Toronto and that happens to be where you're, you're brought, you'll get that type of care and you'll move to the next level of care. And, uh, you know, th this is a, a parallel development that occurred in the military for wartime surgery, but has been uh, now more or less completely deployed across North America so that there's minimal differences uh, to, the, or at least we're trying to minimize the differences to the outcome for patients, depending on where they're injured. Uh, that's that's very well said, and you're you're exactly right. The the homogeneity of our province-wide trauma systems, I, I totally agree, is is remarkably good in Canada. And you know, we don't have to go far south of the border to compare state by state the differences in in those systems, uh, which are dramatic. Um, you, you know, if we if we shift gears a little bit here, I was hoping you'd be willing to talk to us about the Canadian Journal of Surgery in particular. You were obviously the longtime editor of CJS. Um, and did some really amazing things. And, you know, Amir and I and Ed Harvey talked about uh, you behind your back um, in, a, in a very glowing and deserved way uh, about how you really took this journal, um, you know, from, from sort of moderate heights, I would argue, to, to great heights, to your impact factor during your tenure. Um, you know, it, it skyrocketed. If you look at a number of indices, the, the Canadian Journal of Surgery is now in the top 10 among surgical journals that are peer-reviewed and on PubMed. I, you know, I, I, I'm lucky enough that, that um, you showed me behind the scenes of how you did that. But for our listeners, how, how did you do that? What did your time as editor of, of CJS mean to you? And, and where do you think the journal should and, and will go from, from, uh, from your launching pad? Well, now, very kind of you to say my launching pad. I'm, I'm just part of the continuum, uh, and uh, you're continuing it for me, and I'm delighted about that. Um, no, I, I took over from uh, Garth, uh, who was, uh, you know, a very diligent editor, uh, very much in the old school of things, and actually the impact factor growth, uh, you know, if you really understand your journals, it would be due to his tenure, not mine. Uh, I, I helped by continuing. Maybe I changed maybe one of our 
goals, instead of having an impact factor growth, which uh, was a very, which remains important uh, to us, but I want to have a Canadian impact growth. I said to the team, uh, to the editorial board and to the managerial team, look, we, we've got to matter to Canadian surgeons. If you don't matter to Canadian surgeons, you don't matter to anybody. But if you matter to Canadian surgeons, then you'll matter to everybody. Uh, so we had to have an impact in terms of surgeons who are practicing real-time surgery in Canada. And I, if anything, Chad, I think that's my uh, was my main interest. And I included in that an interest in history, an interest in topics uh, of concern to surgeons, as well as the more traditional academic uh, approaches. There are elements of the Canadian surgery that I miss um, that I don't think we managed to achieve in my time. One is that we're a very clinical journal um, and we think a lot about the training of surgeons and we're a, 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 an opportunity for surgeons in training to start writing. But if you write your best paper as a career surgeon in Canada, I wanted you to publish in the Canadian Journal of Surgery. Okay, you know, you get a little more kudos if it's in the Annals of Surgery, but it'll live longer if it's in the Canadian Journal of Surgery because somebody's going to read your paper 40 years, 50 years, or 100 years from now and say that's what they were doing in Calgary or that's what they were doing in Toronto. And But if you're in the Annals, they may or may not find you because you're lost in the mass. So I really wanted to exploit the uh, Canadian impact and we didn't achieve that. And one of the things we still haven't achieved is looking at research that uh, Canadian surgeons are doing, especially uh, preclinical research, laboratory research. We, we have very little uh, of that in the Canadian Journal. So um, I have mixed feelings about the, the journal. I think we have achieved a lot, but we're nowhere near the level of excellence that we should be if we were at the level of excellence of the surgery, the academic and clinical surgery in Canada itself. One of the things sort of on a related note that we wanted to talk to you about is um, the surgical history that you are uh, a master of, particularly within the country of Canada. Why is that something that's so important to you? And you wrote a fascinating article about this for CGS on the, the sort of the Canadian history of surgery within the country. Why, why is that so important to you? And, and why do you think that that should be important to surgical graduates? You know, when you get your job in surgery, or even if you get into a, a surgery residency training program, you, you're assigned a locker. And somebody had that locker before you. The locker I got in, in Halifax was, uh, it still had the lock on it from Bernie Steele. So I got the lock cut off and I thought there'd be some, uh, you know, wonderful uh, things in it from Bernie, but he had cleared it out. He just put the lock back on and it was empty. But at the same time, you're always walking in somebody else's shoes. You know, you're, you're, you only inherit your job because somebody did that job before. And, uh, you know, if you go that, if you go down the list of people who walked in your 
job, who, who, who wore the shoes of your job before, it goes back, you know, 150 years. So you can't not be involved in history. I don't know how anybody would think that they're the first person on the planet to do this. So the same applies to specialties. You know, when you're you're doing a special surgery and you say, I'm, I'm you know, I'm delighted that this particular operation went well, but you're not the first. Uh, so you, you're always following others. And it's impossible in surgery to have um, an appreciation for what you do without knowing about your past. Funnily enough, we are very similar as surgeons to musicians. I don't know, maybe it's traditional musicians, but traditional musicians usually always start by saying, I was taught this tune by so-and-so, you know, by uh, McMaster in Nova Scotia or something like that. They always accredited their teacher whoever taught them and they were their teacher was taught by somebody else and it's the exact same thing in surgery we because we have a skill we have to be taught we have to learn it from somebody and therefore it has to come down through history so you can't not be involved in history it's it's just impossible uh, then the other things that we do like when we end up in war situations uh, or in unusual situations in specialties with trauma, with transplantation, with vascular surgery, you're there facing the exact same difficulty or challenge that your predecessors faced. And not to read how they managed what they're doing, um, you know, it just beggars belief. You, 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 I think everybody is interested in the history of surgery when they practice surgery. So... I, that's where it comes from, Amir. You know, I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And I, I have love this vision that you have of walking in and, and putting your stuff in, in another amazing legendary surgeon's locker. And there's sort of this like sense of an unbroken line going from you to the, you know, our, our surgeons of the past. It's, a, it's quite a moving and beautiful thing to think about. How do you sort how do you think about igniting um, trainees passion in in understanding our history I mean it, it it's sometimes hard to you know think about how let's say Coker or, or some of these his surgical uh, greats how that sort of relates to you sometimes in, in the sense that like what we do now is uh, very different in many ways um, it's not different at all you think it's different the patients are exactly the same and you're you're you are Coker when you're faced with a patient with a difficult thyroid or if you're faced with, um, uh, you know, a patient in, uh, with biliary surgery, uh, you're the same as the, the other surgeons. I, I think of um, them when I'm actually operating and I'm facing a, a challenge and I wonder what would the, uh, in London, you say, you always wonder what would the chief do? And the chief was Angus McLaughlin. And uh, the old surgeons always said, you know, when they're stuck, they just try and think in their mind, what would the chief do uh, in, in that situation? But we all go through that. You know, you're going to face a challenge uh, the minute you graduate from residency and you're, you're the only one who decides how this ship is going to sail. What direction are you going to take? 
Are you going to cut here? Are you going to cut there? Are you going to abandon? Are you going to keep going? And um, you have to think back into your training and you're going to ask yourself, what would somebody do? So that's, I suppose, how you ignite, as you said, the interest uh, in history. But one of the things that history or at least historical papers have that we don't have today, we tend to write in a very distant voice in uh, articles of today. We write very much from a very high level and we don't um, insert ourselves into the papers that we're writing. In the past, they actually inserted themselves and their patients directly into the writing. They even named their patients half the time or they would give initials, or they would give uh, very revealing uh, elements to their patients' lives. And so to read the historical papers is actually fascinating. You almost are there. You, you can feel what they're thinking. If you're a surgeon in the same situation and you understand and you read their papers, it, it's like reading a diary uh, half the time. So you just have to try and read it. I'll give you an example. I, I, for some reason, ended up looking at a, a surgeon in Halifax called Murphy, who um, died in the 1980s, but he had a career going from the 1930s to the 1980s. And his uh, career included writing plays and writing uh, screenplays for television and everything. And he's remembered for that. But actually, he wrote extraordinary papers and one of the papers he wrote in 1940 was about dressings and he talked about how hazardous it is to keep changing dressings every day people poking their fingers in his wounds and causing all these infections and then he, he went and looked at the history of closed treatment of wounds and he was talking mainly about compound uh, bone fractures and complex uh, limb injuries and at the time, Joseph Troita in, Truita in um, then in England, who had pioneered closed um, dressings for compound fractures in the Spanish Civil War, had written a big textbook on it. Uh, and um, Murphy followed it all the way back to the Franco-Prussian War and a French surgeon called Ollier, who actually described the exact same thing. And even Ollier described what we all as surgeons get worried about is when people keep taking our dressings down and changing the darn thing every, you know, twice a day or and stuff like that. And you say, if you just left it alone, it would heal. I had left it the way I wanted it to, to heal. Anyway, that surgeon 150 or 200 years ago was facing the exact same thing that I am today. And uh, I can read them. I can I can understand it by reading them. That's that's so interesting, and you know, it's just another great story. Uh, the listeners, I think, now probably have a flavor for it, and won't won't be surprised when I say that one of my very favorite things to do in the year is is sit with you at the annual CHPBA dinner and listen to some of these <laughs> stories. And you know, you're you're uh, you're you're such a great storyteller, and. Uh, I, I don't want to put you on the spot or, or, or paraphrase the story, but you know, um, your, some of your stories really are truly, truly, truly epic. Um, a lot of them also highlight, though, 
some of the, you know, the old school hardcore nature that you certainly endured and, and maybe I did uh, to some extent as well. Um, and it seems like a, like a long way away from the training environments that, that we all work in now. I, I'm curious on just in terms of a 30,000 foot broad stroke, uh, what are some of the, the big ways that training, um, in our case, residents uh, have gone through over the, the length of your very uh, long and impressive career? Yeah, I don't know if you're getting at this, Chad, but, um, you know, I went to boarding school as a child before, uh, you know, I went to university and bullying was part of the culture in that school. And as you went up the years, you know, you could bully the years below. But I refused to do, take part in any of that. I absolutely refused. And I was kind of uh, um, known for not conforming uh, at that time. And actually, I don't think there's any role for bullying in training in general surgery. Now, the old school felt that all we're doing is, and the only people they bullied in the old school was where the, the graduates, where the residents that they really felt were going to be the best residents. They never bullied people who weren't residents or who were not going to succeed. They only bullied the tough, the, the, the top tier. And they felt they were hardening them for facing the real world. When you get out there, you're going to have to face this. And I'm just preparing you to work under stressful situations uh, to learn how to slow your breath, your breathing down, to control that tremor, do everything exactly the way it needs to be done in a slow and controlled situation, even though everybody around you is going crazy. And to some extent, they're right. But, you know, there are other ways for us to train that today. Um, and in the end, for all the bullying that I endured, I don't think I learned a thing from it. I had to face it all again when I was out as an individual surgeon with, a you know, a, a critical situation. And I had to be able to uh, provide the care that was required. So I have no doubt that the graduates of today with a different system will actually perform as well or better than I did uh, when faced with the exact same critical situation. I hope I'm right, but I, I, I really have no doubts about it, that it's the way to go for the future. So there's this really right? great movie that I'd recommend all our listeners uh, to check out called Whiplash. It won a bunch of awards, and it tells the story of this drummer who wants to get into the symphony orchestra in i think in new york and he has this sort of very sadistic kind of overbearing um uh, conductor who just you know rides him relentlessly and one of the things he says in the in the movie is the worst thing that you can possibly say to someone is <laughs> good job now of course you know i'm not i'm not i'm not advocating that that's how we should be but you know, uh, it's funny that you say about picking on the best. When we when we were uh, young and doing Taekwondo, then uh, our instructor always used to pick on me and uh, my brother and uh, used to drive my brother, who's now a lawyer, crazy. 
Um, he'd be like, well, why are you always picking on us and not the, the other students? And he said, well, it's because I only care about you and, and the people that, I, that can do well. Um, and and it's sort of a comment and a question from me that, you know, uh, sometimes when as a trainee, you feel like, why, why is someone hammering me? Uh, but but maybe it's because they uh, really see some potential in you and, and want to bring that out in you. And um, I wonder if you found that to be true oh, it's or, or not. True. You're absolutely right, Amir. And how we train is uh, how we train those who follow us is actually the the critical question for civilization. If you think about it, that's that's what it's all about. Um, you know, I have a I'm known for having a quiet demeanor. Uh, in the hospital, in the operating room. Um, and if I get stressed, it actually sets off these enormous alarm bells uh, within the operating room. Uh, it's worse than if I had a, behaved like some of the people who trained me. Far worse. The, the whole place, I could hear them going quiet and they're all stressed and upset. And I have to stop it and I'm watching a resident doing something and I said, look, look, this is a critical stitch. Just stop for a second. Take a second. I want you to just breathe more slowly. Let's get it in properly. And then he doesn't do it properly. And I go, oh, God. And the stress gets worse. And then I say, okay, I'm making the situation worse. I got to calm this entire room down myself because I'm not, you know what I mean? It's that. We do uh, bring out stress, no matter what the situation is, because we're dealing with critical situations. So learning how to teach your students to deal with that stress and perform the best they've ever performed, the worse the stress is, that's the secret. And it's probably the secret for everything that we do in society. You've been listening to Cold Steel, the official podcast of the Canadian Journal of Surgery. If you've liked what you've been listening to, please leave us a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear your comments and feedback, so feel free to email us at podcast.cjs at gmail.com or connect with us on Twitter at CanJSurge. Thanks again.